0: Derek Walker is the pastor of Oxford Bible Church, a church he co-passes with his wife Hilary. He heard the gospel many years ago while studying mathematics at St. Catherine's College, Oxford University, and soon after he began to be aware of a strong call to study God's Word and to stay in Oxford. After university, he taught maths in St. Edward's School and then became the head teacher of maths at Cherwell Tutors. Pastor Derek has a passion to study and teach God's Word in detail, and has written about 17 books, including The Imminent Invasion of Israel and End-Time Prophecies. He has a special interest in Bible prophecy and chronology, and has led a number of tour groups to Israel, helping to bring the Bible to life for many people. We'd like to welcome you, um, Pastor We thank you for your presence today. It's a great pleasure to take... Uh, to receive your invitation and it is a subject that's very close to my heart on the rapture and I do believe that we are living in the end times and, and the church really needs to be educated about end time issue. It is a shame that uh, often the subject of Bible prophecy is is neglected. and if you think about the big three you know we, we believe that faith, hope and love and of course the greatest thing is love. And, of course, we're strong on faith as well, I believe, in the Bible. But the third one, which is hope, that's neglected, and yet it is vital. Hope is that confident expectation of what is going to happen because of what we know from the Scripture. And hope really is the area of Bible prophecy. And yet we sometimes think that it's an optional extra. It is important. On the surface of it, the subject today, you know, Will the rapture be before, in the middle, or at the end of the tribulation? Well, it doesn't sound that important as the timing issue. But as I hope to show that, in fact, it is actually a, of major importance. Uh, and it does affect how we, how we live. And um, the church I was put to you has, by neglecting the pre-tribulation rapture, we have lost something that, that, that we need. Um, the church world generally, that is, in this country for sure, has uh, uh, you know even the Pentecostal church has uh, has gone away from its roots on that on this particular issue, and it is it does have a very practical effect that I'll that I'll hope to show to you. Um, it's a big it's quite a big subject, and I'm going to give you a quick overview of what I believe is the biblical teaching on the pre treb rapture, and. Uh, and, and then, of course, you can come back to me if, if any parts of it, you know, if you want to challenge me on any parts or whatever. But the, it, it, I'm going to show you that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, they all taught the pre Rapture. And I'm going to, so I'm going to start with the teaching of Jesus first of all. And um, perhaps in John 14one to 3, you know these verses well. Let not your heart be troubled believe in God believe also in me in my father's house of many mansions and he says I am going to prepare a place for you and I will come again and I will receive you to myself so Jesus is coming specifically for his church to receive us to himself and that where I am there you may be also and this tells us the spirit of the rapture what it's all about for us actually it's the bridegroom coming for his bride. These are the words, if you know, I don't have time to get into the Jewish background, but these are the words of the bridegroom. Once we are betrothed to Jesus right now, we've come, we've made covenant with Jesus, and once in the, in the Eastern uh, ways, once that betrothal has been made, once the covenant's been made, then the bridegroom goes away to his father's house, and he builds, you know, where they're going to live as an extension of the the father's housing complex. And then when the father says everything's ready, then the son is able to go back and fetch his bride. And that's that romantic moment when he comes and he, as it were, lifts her up and carries her back to the father's house. And that's where the, the, the wedding takes place and that's where they live happily ever after. And that's, that's what, these are, this is the divine romance. And Jesus is saying, oh, I'm coming again and I will bring you to myself. And um, so for us, it's the bridegroom coming for his bride. But in the other teaching of Jesus, we see the other side of the rapture is it's actually described as the thief in the night. It's very strange that Jesus would compare his coming to the thief in the night. But is Jesus a thief? And uh, I I want to explain that. Actually, to to, to the world, the rapture is the thief in the night. But to us, it's the bridegroom coming for his bride. Th- what does a thief do? The thief takes the valuables from the house. And one day, and it could happen at any moment, suddenly millions, billion Christians are gonna disappear. And the world will look on and say, a thief has come. And the, and the, bro- and, and the thief, has, as it were, come to take the valuables from the earth. But actually, we know that Jesus isn't a thief. He's only taking what belongs to him. But to the world, it will seem as if a thief has come. But for us, it's the bridegroom who's come for his bride. And and these are the images that Jesus introduced, because the reason I want to start with the teaching of Jesus is that the Apostle Paul deliberately builds on the teaching of Jesus. He uses the same language, and, and he develops it. And so I'm going to want to take you to Matthew 24, the famous Olivet Discourse, and uh, the the whole uh, teaching in Matthew twenty four is actually based on the three questions that the disciples asked. In verse three, um, Matthew twenty four three, they ask him three questions. He says, "When shall be these things be? And what shall be this, When? Sorry, when shall these things be? And what is the sign of them?" Luke adds. Uh, And that's the talking about the destruction of the temple, because Jesus had just told them, don't look at this lovely temple, because no stone is going to be left upon another. That was fulfilled in AD 70. And uh, so the first question is, give us the sign of that happening. And the Olivet Discourse is all about signs. And Jesus gave that answer, actually, in Luke 21. The Olivet Discourse is in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and it's also in Mark. And so... Jesus gave the sign, it was Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies, and uh, what actually happened there in AD 67 is that the, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, but their supply lines were short, so they had to withdraw from that siege, and so that was the sign, and the Christians did take that sign, and they escaped to Pella, and million Christian lives were saved because of that prophecy of Jesus, and then a few years later, the armies returned and destroyed Jerusalem. The second question that Jesus, that Jesus addressed from the disciples was, what will be the sign of your coming? What's the sign of the second coming? And um, Jesus gave a whole set of signs. He gave um, uh, what would happen at the start. And, it, and really, to understand why the rapture has to be before the tribulation, you have to understand what the tribulation is. The tribulation is not just the end of the church age, and it's a little bit worse than what we're experiencing right now. The, the, the nature of the tribulation is something quite other than the church age. The tribulation, the Bible calls it the end of the age. It's also called the day of the Lord. It's also Daniel's 70th week. It's a time of divine judgment and divine wrath. And one reason why we believe that the church won't go through that is that there are promises in the Bible that the church has, is not appointed to wrath. Jesus In 2 Thessalonians 1.10, it says that when Jesus returns, we are to wait for his Son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so in Jesus' coming, he actually is delivering us from the wrath of God, because the tribulation is actually a time of the wrath of God. Yes, it is the wrath of Satan, the wrath of man. Antichrist is on the earth. Evil's coming to its fullness. The devil's busier than ever. All of that. But the thing that makes it different is that it's a time of the wrath of God. And I'll prove that from the book of Revelation, hopefully if I've got the last ten minutes, of that. And that is why we are not um, called to, for that. But anyway, Jesus answered in Matthew 24 for, from verse 7 to uh, 31. He answers this second question. What are the signs of his coming? And his answer really for starts by describing the start of the tribulation. And he calls the start of the tribulation, he, start, he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He's describing world war. He's talking about worldwide famines, worldwide earthquakes, uh, worldwide persecution on a, on a bigger level. Uh, and he says, these are like the beginning of birth pains. And the tribulation, and the Jews had this name for the tribulation, they, they understood it from the Old Testament scriptures, that before the Lord, the Messiah, would return, there would be a time of unprecedented suffering and tribulation. Daniel used that, that expression, a time like has never been before or will ever be again. And this was the time of tribulation. Jesus used that same way of describing it. It's something unprecedented. And in that time of tribulation, uh, it's, it's compared to birth pains. Right now, there's a pregnancy going on. Because what God is going to do in the next phase after the church age, and this church age is not God's ultimate. Though a lot of the church world would like to think so. God is, setting up, is going to set up his kingdom on the earth. It's called the messianic kingdom. Jesus is going to rule on earth for a thousand years. He's going to replace all the kingdoms of this world and he himself is going to <coughs> reign, praise God. And his wife, his bride is going to reign with him. We will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And that kingdom is going to be born on the earth. But birth pains happen. The baby is a wonderful thing. But because of sin uh, in the mother's body, there's something that resists that birth. And so the birth becomes a painful thing because these birth pains are a sign that there's something resisting that birth. And the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, is operating on this earth. Sin is in this realm. Jesus is setting to establish his kingdom on earth. And therefore, there is a time of birth pains that's going to happen before that birth happens. And that's what the tribulation is. It's the birth pains of the Messiah, the Jews would call it and it's described like that in Jeremiah 30 it's a time of birth pains and so Jesus said the tribulation will start with a sudden onset of uh, you know like I said world war earthquakes convulsions of nature everything's going to start literally going to hell you might say and birth pains just get stronger and stronger until the actual birth and so as you get closer and closer to the second coming the, the tribulation gets worse and worse. So It's a time of birth pains, and that's how Jesus described the start of the tribulation. Then he described the sign of being at the middle of the tribulation. He said, "When you see the abomination of desolation put up in the temple," that Daniel talks about, Daniel 70 weeks, that happens at mid-tribulation. Then he described the signs just before his second coming. There's going to be a total, well, the, the, there's going to be a total blackout. The sun, moon, stars are going to be turned off. And then the universe is going to be shaken as the Lord roars from heaven. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then the Lord... Oh, that's very kind of you. I've been given a little extra time. And then the Lord appears in His glory. And Jesus is is, um, giving all the signs, you see, leading up to the second coming. And then He says, uh, and then He describes... How he's going to blow a trumpet, and all uh, Israel is going to be regathered to the nation, and then they're going to set up that kingdom. Now, I needed to say that so you understand the whole flow of this prophecy. Then, there is a third question. A lot of people don't understand. How come Jesus then went back in time? Having described the sequence of events up to the second coming, he then goes back in time because he's answering the third question. The third question is, what is the sign of the end of the age? Now that might sound like a similar thing, but this is a different word. There's two Greek words for end. One's telos, all right, and the other is suntelia. The end is the second coming, the final end. But the suntelia, just a minute, actually, I would appreciate whoever's doing the timing if you will give me a five-minute... Right? Now when you do that... I will be at the end of my talk. That's the suntelia. The Bible, in the old translation, it was the consummation of the age. When it says here, the end of the age, it's the suntelia. It's not the final thing, it's the, it's the closing. You know, say you're giving a talk and you bring up all kinds of different subjects and then at the end, you, you bring all the threads of your thought together to, the, to their climax. That's the end of your talk, the last five minutes of the talk. And so... That's what is meant by the end of the age. You see, the the difference is, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, for example, you know, they said, you know, there's bad bad seed being sown in the church age, as well as the good seed. Satan is sowing his seed. So the disciples said, well, should we we pull up the tares? And Jesus said, no, leave them be, because you'll probably do more harm than good. And what he's saying is that this church age is not a time for judgment. God is allowing evil. All right? And often in the church age we think, well, Jesus, why don't you deal with this evil? And one day he will. But this is not a time of judgment generally. All right? That's what the wheat and the tares tell us. And in that parable Jesus said, the harvest is the end of the age. Judgment time is in the end of the age, in the tribulation. In the tribulation is when Jesus starts moving in judgment against the evil in this world he does it in seven years he could do it in in one day he could just destroy all evil in one day why does he take seven years to do it why does he use seven years of increasing bombardment from heaven because he wants even in the tribulation he wants to save as many people as possible and so um, he takes seven years, but it is a time of judgment. It is when he is actually moving against evil, and and uh, by the end of those seven years, he will have destroyed all evil, removed all evildoers from the earth, and established his kingdom. All right. I'm taking too long, so um, let me get down to it. What is the sign of the end of the, the age? And I believe at this point, and now we're in Matthew 24, He's talked about the events leading up to the second coming. Now he starts talking about the end. Um, how do we know, what's the sign of being in the end, close to the end of the age? See, a sign comes before the main event. So this third question is, how can we know when the tribulation is getting close? How can we know when we're getting close to the end of the age? And that's very interesting to us. This is the question that applies to us. Because I believe that we are getting close to the tribulation. We are in that final generation. And the reason I believe that is from the words of Jesus here, because this is when Jesus talks about the fig tree and all the trees. How can we know we're getting close to the end? He says, the fig tree and all the trees. And again, I don't have time to prove this all to you, but he talks about these trees and he talks about these things. These are the things he's been talking about. All the things in the tribulation are the trees that are full grown in the tribulation. So how do we know we're getting close to the tri- tribulation? Well, in the, in, the, the, in the summer, the tribulation's like the summer. In the summer, all the trees are bringing forth their fruit. So how do you know you're close to the summer? This is where Jesus says... Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When you see them beginning to put forth their leaves, you know it's springtime. Therefore, you know summer is near. So when you start seeing all the things beginning to manifest that come to their fullness in the tribulation, you know you're getting close. The fig tree is the classic one. That's Israel. I could easily prove to you that Israel's the fig tree. There there There's a parable in Luke 13 exactly about this, that the man who has a vineyard, and there's a fig tree in the vineyard. And he, and he says, I've come for three years, this is obviously Jesus, looking for fruit on this fig tree. And it's not bearing any fruit. Cut it down. And then the father, the gardener, says, no, give them one more year also. And if they still haven't borne fruit, then cut it down. And it's clearly talking about Israel and the fact that Israel was not responding to the gospel. And, and, and so judgment was going to come on Israel not forever but for a time so Israel is clearly the fig tree and then Jesus in his end time talk just the previous day he had cursed the fig tree this was again showing the judgment that was coming on Israel because of not bearing fruit then in his end time talk he says but when you see the fig tree rise up again and start putting forth its leaves then you know the end is near and so Israel which is the greatest modern miracle, becoming a nation again, 1948. That's Israel putting forth its leaves. No fruit. She's not in in faith, but she's putting forth her leaves. Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. In other words, it's going to be within a man's lifetime of when you see the the fig tree put forth its leaves. That's how you know we're getting close to the tribulation. That's how we know Because of the sign of Israel. Why? Because all the prophecies of the end time, of the tribulation, the Bible has masses of prophecy. Not just the book of Revelation about those final seven years. In all those prophecies, Israel is back in the land as a nation. Therefore, in the time just before, Israel must come back. The stage must be set. Another classic example is technology. You see very high technology in the tribulation. The mark of the beast. The two witnesses, when they're resurrected and they go up to heaven, the whole earth sees that. In other words, satellite TV is showing it. In other words, you've got high technology in the tribulation. Therefore, how do you know you're in the time before the tribulation? The technology tree is beginning to bloom. Well, we, we live in a unique time of, of that. And I could list, I've got a book coming out called The Panorama of Prophecy, which is my foundational book. And I, go, I give at least 12 of these trees that all prove, the signs of the time show that we are in that time. We're getting close to the tribulation. Alright, so, what's it got to do with the rapture? So he talked about the tree and all the, the fig tree and all the trees, and says it's, this, this generation will not pass away. But then he starts talking about the rapture. Because what is the final sign to the world before the tribulation begins? It's His coming in the rapture. Verse 36. But of that day and hour knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And you'll see that whenever he's talking about his coming in the rapture, he talks about, let me talk about this issue right now, because to me this is the most important thing. No one knows the day or the hour. Or the Son of Man will come at a time when you do not expect him. Jesus said many things of this nature. In other words, you don't know. And this is what we call the doctrine of eminency. And this is what is the reason why I believe so fervently in the pre-trib rapture and why it is important for us. Because I believe that Jesus could come at any moment. I believe the appointment we need to be preparing for is not the appointment to meet with the Antichrist. And somehow, oh, we've got to get ready for the Antichrist, you know? Um, but we have a much more important meeting and that's our meeting with Jesus Christ because I believe in imminency imminency means that Jesus could come at any time you know we talk about Jesus is coming soon and that is true but actually when it says that in the Bible it should be translated Jesus is coming quickly he's coming suddenly in fact if you read the last book of the Bible this is the main message Behold, I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming suddenly. In other words, you've got to be ready. You've got to be on the ball all the time. And this is why the pre-trib rapture is important because it's the only teaching that preserves imminency. If you believe Jesus is coming at the end of the tribulation, you can't believe in imminency because Jesus gave us a set of seven years' worth of science. If you're in the tribulation, you know exactly when Jesus is coming back. And, and we know... If Jesus is coming at the end of the tribulation, we know that he can't come for another seven years. If you believe in the mid-tribulation rapture, you you know that Jesus isn't coming for at least three and a half years. So you don't have imminency. But imminency, because I believe in a pre-trib rapture, I believe and I need to live by that consciousness that at any moment I could be standing before Jesus and giving an account to him of my life. Because the, immediate, the, the appointment straight after the rapture is the judgment seat of Christ. And this is not taught anything like enough in the church. That we are going to be judged for our eternal rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's going to make a huge difference to our eternal future. How much glory, how much authority you have in eternity is going to be determined right then. And Jesus deliberately restricted our knowledge on when he was going to return so that we would always be ready. I use this example. Let's say you got a letter from the queen or if you're not a royalist, someone that you highly revere, all right? And they say, hey, I'm going to visit your house any time now and I'm going to inspect your house. Guess what? If they could come at any time, you're going you're to tidy up your house, aren't you? You're going to make sure everything's just so because this VIP is coming to see you. But if they sent you the message, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to come to your house sometime, but it won't be for at least another seven years, yeah, it will have an effect on you. It, 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 will, it will affect your thinking somewhat, but you're not going to immediately change your life, are you? It, it's going to, yeah, it, it will affect you, and the fact that Jesus is coming one day, it does have an effect on us. But how much stronger an effect does it have if Jesus could come at any moment? and give a full and thorough inspection of our life. And that's why imminency is vital, and that's why the church has lost imminency. I could give a, in fact I did do three hours in the church, on imminency. All the scriptures that motivate believers. The coming of the Lord is at hand. The Lord, he's at the door, he's ready to come. The Lord could come at any time. It's like the bride, who, who knows her bridegroom could come at any time and take her to be with him. And so she, it makes sure she's ready. She makes sure she's busy for the Lord. The imminency has always been a great spur to evangelism and holiness. This idea that pre rapture is about escapism—oh, we just, we, we just want, we're just, we're just going to wait in our little corner, waiting for uh, to be taken out of here—that's not what it's about at all. It's actually, it's if we know Jesus is going to come anytime, we want to be found serving the Lord. Witnessing for the Lord. Living holy lives for the Lord. That is a, a major motivation in the New Testament. If you, we, we just gloss over these verses. But the major motiva- there are three major motivations. And one of them is the imminency of the Lord's return. So you'll see that there has to be two phases to the Lord's coming. The second coming in power and glory has signs. It's signposted. You know exactly when it's happening. But whenever Jesus is talking about the rapture, it's, it's a signless event, because it could happen at any time. No one knows the day and the hour. All right, let's keep going. Watch therefore. Be ready always, he says, for you don't know what hour your Lord comes. But know this, if the master of the house had known what watch the thief would come, he would have watched. And this is where Jesus introduces the picture of the thief. All right, and Paul is going to pick up on this same image. Jesus compares himself to a thief. Now, this is totally different to the image of him coming in power and glory. A thief does not announce his coming with signs. He doesn't give you, oh, I'm going to come and... Mind you, this doesn't work in Nigeria apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I preach this, a Nigerian comes. Actually, that's what they do in Nigeria. They say, I'm going to rob your house at midnight, so you better not be there, and otherwise you will get killed. So that... But you know, generally, thieves in this country do not tell you, I'm going to rob your house tonight. You know, the thief comes, you don't know when he's going to come. He's going to come, he's going to take what he wants, he's going to go. And that's what Jesus is going to do in the rapture. That's a different thing to the second coming. So he talks about the thief. Be ready for, uh, in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. So you don't know when he's coming. There are no signs. Div- totally different to the second coming. All right, who is a faithful? Um, he talks that that spurs us to be a faithful servant of the Lord. That's what he's saying. So you've got to stay constantly ready. He he warns about the servant who says, "Oh, my master delays his coming. He can't possibly come for another seven years." So this the servant gets lazy, and then the Lord takes him by surprise, and boy, is he in trouble. Yeah. And then. Um, uh, I missed a bit, sorry, um, I jumped over. Verse 37 is what I want to get to. But as the days of Noah, so is the coming of the Son of Man He compares his return to the days of Noah. As in the days before the flood, that eating, drinking, marrying, giving marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, he didn't know until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, the flood is a type of the tribulation, because the flood was a worldwide judgment. And that's exactly what the tribulation will be. It's a worldwide judgment. All right? So, what he's saying is, in the time before, normal life will be going on. Yes, very materialistic, godless, eating, drinking. Nothing wrong with eating, drinking, marrying, giving, marriage. Normal life is going on, and then suddenly, what happened? The flood came. And that's what Jesus says it will be life. Normal life will be going on, and then suddenly the tribulation is going to come down. Now, notice that does not fit the second coming, because it will not be for normal life. If you read the book of Revelation, alright? If you take the book of Revelation seriously, what life will be like just before the Lord's return, the battle of Armageddon, all the judgments breaking loose on the earth, the Antichrist, that is not normal life absolutely not. Thessalonians says peace, they'll be saying peace and safety. And then suddenly the tribulation is going to come down on them. This is not describing the second coming. This is describing the tribulation. It's a worldwide judgment that comes upon the whole earth. And he says in the same way it's going to come suddenly on the earth. They'll be unsuspecting. They'll think everything's fine. And then suddenly the earth will be plunged into the tribulation. But what was the sign to the world just before the flood came down. It was the disappearance of Noah and the believers into the ark. Jesus is our ark of salvation, praise God. I can preach a sermon on Noah's ark. It's a picture of Christ. They covered it with red resin. The ark was made of wood. Wood is his humanity, covered with red resin, which has made it waterproof, all right? Praise God, and anyone who believed the message, and got into the ark, the judgment came down, but the ark took the judgment. Mm -hmm. Praise God, if we believe in Christ, we're put in Christ, we're under the blood, we're under the covering, and judgment fell on Christ, and we are free from judgment. Praise God. And so, what happened before judgment fell, because we are not appointed to judgment, believers are not appointed to judgment, and so, in Christ, they were... The believers disappeared into the ark, and they were carried above the judgment of the flood. And Jesus said, so it will be in that day. Before, life is normal. Then the believers disappear into the ark, and then suddenly the judgment falls down. In Luke, not here, but he also says it will be like as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what happened then. Before the judgment came down... The angels took Lot and his family out. Believers were removed from the scene of the judgment before judgment came down because believers are not appointed to judgment. What's the scene of the judgment in in terms of the tribulation? It's a worldwide judgment. So believers must be removed from the earth if they're not to come under that judgment. And so this is the first mention. And the, the fact that it's talking about the rapture is confirmed because this is where Jesus gives these famous rapture verses and um, where he says, then there will be two in the field, one will be taken, the other left. That is the rapture. Even people who believe like me on the preacher of rapture often they miss this obvious point. That's the rapture. Jesus is talking about the rapture here. Mm -hmm. One will be taken, the other left. And when it says the word taken, this is the very same word that was used for Joseph taking Mary as his wife. Alright? It's the bridegroom taking the bride to be with herself. Um, And so... Jesus talked about the rapture right here. And uh, that happens before the tribulation. All right. Now we've covered the teaching of Jesus. Let us now go to the teaching of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, I wanted to cover that because a lot of people don't think it's just the Apostle Paul that talked on the rapture. These are the famous verses, of course, but I'm going to start 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now, what this actually is, and Paul often do, does this, he built his teaching on the foundation of the teaching of Jesus. And when he says, uh, by the word, it's actually according to the word or the commandment of the Lord. What Paul is saying is, what I'm teaching you now on the rapture agrees with Jesus' teaching on the rapture. And I'll, I'll show you. That uh, That's the case. He uses the same language.
1: We who are alive and remain
0: until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent those that are asleep. Do you see Paul expected to be in the rapture? Was he, was he wrong? No, because he believed in imminency. All right? He, God, Jesus ke- keeps the knowledge of when it's going to happen. So we've got to stay ready all the time. Even Paul lived... In the conscious expectancy that he might stand before the Lord any moment. So that's why he says, We, we who are alive. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, uh, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's where we get the word rapture from, by the way. The word caught up. It's harpazo. But in the Latin, it's rapto. That's where we get the rapture. It's a sudden event. Our bridegroom is going to come, and he's going to take us to be with him. Praise God. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. See, that reflects John 14, doesn't it? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, the pre-tribulation rapture is comforting. The post-tribulation rapture is saying, you're going to, you know, the Bible says, you know, we're to wait for the Lord. We're to look for the Lord. We're to watch for the Lord. But the post-tribulation rapture, you you better look out for the Antichrist. wonder who the Antichrist is, because we're going to have a horrible time. It's not a blessed hope, it's a blasted hope. We have a blessed hope because our bridegroom is coming. Hallelujah. Now, as to the timing of it, which is what we're concerned about tonight, he addresses that directly in the next chapter. And this is a plain statement of the pre-trib Rapture right here in chapter 5. But of the times and seasons, brethren, what's the timing of this event? You don't have any need that I write to you. In other words, you you ought to know this stuff, he said. I taught you for three weeks. You ought to know this stuff. This is foundational. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord... Now, this is a term for the tribulation. The day of the Lord is when God intervenes. It's not the second coming as such. That's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. All right? That is the climax of the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord is a period of when God is moving in judgment. But you, brethren, on the other hand, you're not in darkness. I would say you're not part of the kingdom of darkness. That that day should overtake you as a thief. So the experience for believers will be completely different. For unbelievers, it will be like a thief has come. But for us, we're not in the kingdom of darkness, so we're going to have a different experience. For you are all children of the light. You're in the kingdom of the light. Children of the day. We're not of the night or of the kingdom of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others. Let us watch and be sober. And then, uh, verse 8. Let us who are of the day put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Now, the helmet is the hope of salvation. This is what we need. That's why we need to study prophecy. Because we need a helmet on our head that's called the hope of salvation. It will protect our mind in the conflicts of this life. The hope is something future. This is not talking about our salvation in the cross, our, our past salvation. Our, it's talking about the hope of our future salvation, which is the resurrection of our body in the rapture. Yeah. And he says, be, be, have, be, let that be the focus of your thoughts that controls your life, that, that any time soon you're going to be standing before the Lord in your resurrection body. The hope of your salvation He says, for God has not appointed us to wrath. He's not appointed you to the tribulation. But to obtain salvation. What salvation? The salvation of the rapture. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us that whether we wake or sleep we should live together with him. Can you see that's the language of the last chapter? Whether we wake or sleep we'll live with him. He's talking about our hope is the salvation of the rapture. Not the wrath that the unbelieving world. Will experience. Then we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter two, which is a controversial chapter. But I just want to show you how consistent it is with the pre-fresh position. How how long do I have? I've got a time myself. Yes, you have uh, ten minutes. All right. No, I think I'll use those ten minutes. You've been been very generous with my time, (laughs) so I'm not complaining. I'm not pushing for more. I need. I. I think I can. Maybe we can talk about two Thessalonians later. It's a very interesting chapter. But... Are you sure? I'm not manipulating you. No, 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 no. All right. No. You're, you're very kind. I love this chapter myself. Now, two bet- Thessalonians 2, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together to him. He's talking about the rapture. He's introduced the subject. It's the rapture. That you do not be so soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word, nor by letter, as from us, that the day... Actually, it should be the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, the translation struggle here. It's actually um, not a correct translation. I'm using the King James here. But it's literally, don't be troubled that the day of the Lord has come. All right? Don't be troubled that the day... What's happened is... I think probably some Roman Emperor has come to power and somebody was putting around the teaching that we're in the tribulation already the day of the Lord has come that was the teaching it can't be that the day of the Lord is the second coming because everyone would have known Jesus hadn't returned in his second coming obviously neither can the day of the Lord mean the rapture because everyone would know that the rapture hadn't happened again Two Thessalonians uses the same definition for the day of the Lord as one Thessalonians. It's the tribulation. So a false teaching had broken out, and it will break out. It's, still, it's around now. The people who talk about, oh, the, the fourth trumpet has been blown. I saw it in the spirit. You know, we're in the tribulation already. No, this is what he's answering here. People were even pretending that Paul had been putting out this teaching. We're in the tribulation right now. And people were disturbed because they're thinking, you know, the Antichrist, maybe Nero's the emperor and he's about to have them have their heads off or something. So they're all concerned. And the reason why they're concerned, I have put to you, is because Paul taught them the pre-trib rapture. And they, they, they had the assurance that they were not going to be in the tribulation. And now suddenly there's this teaching that's disturbing them, that they're in the tribulation. The day of the Lord has happened. They're in it. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first. Now again, don't have time for this, but basically, this word, falling away, or in your translation, it might be apostasy. That's an unfortunate translation. The root word here simply means departure. Basically, the Old English translations before the King James translated this as Departure. I could translate that word, because it doesn't say falling away from the faith, like it does in Timothy. Okay? There will be a falling away from faith in the end times. He's not talking about that yet. He says, unless the departure comes first. And the tribulation won't happen until the departure comes first. What departure? Normally, well, it's a rule of interpretation. It, if it doesn't say, like in Timothy, the departure from the faith then we know what departure it is. But if it just says the departure, and it doesn't tell you what departure is, the rule of interpretation is you look in the context, because it should be obvious from the context what departure we're talking about. What is the subject under discussion? It's the rapture. It's the departure of the church from the earth. So what he's saying is, no, that teaching is wrong, because the day of the Lord can't come, the tribulation can't come, unless the departure of the church comes first. And then... You'll be in the tribulation. And then the man of sin will be revealed. So he's saying that the the Antichrist will only be revealed after the rapture. And that's confirmed as we read on. All right. This is a difficult passage, by the way. So uh, I'm just giving you a quickie. The son of perdition. And then it describes the Antichrist. He opposes, exalts himself above all that's called God or his worship. He is God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself God. He says, remember, I told you all this stuff. And now, watch this, verse 6. Now you know what withholds him, that he might be revealed in his time. He says there's something restraining the Antichrist right now, until the right time. And it's described as a what, and it's described as a he. You know what's withholding him, he says. uh, uh, For the mystery works only he who now restrains him will restrain him until he's taken out of the way. Do you see? He says the subject is the rapture. Then he talks about the departure that must happen before the Antichrist is revealed, and now he's saying there's something holding the Antichrist back right now. What can that be? Well, it's described as a what and a he, because it is both. It's the Holy Spirit through the church. The Holy Spirit through the Church is withholding the spirit of Antichrist, so it's necessary for that church, for the Church to be taken out of the way, so that before the Antichrist can be revealed. So I just say that enough there to show that 2 Thessalonians 2 fits perfectly with a pre-trip position. But I, I really wanted to leave as my climax the book of Revelation, because that to me is absolutely clear. The, book, the way the book of Revelation, again, I, I take the Bible literally. The book of Revelation, I want to give you the key to understanding that. Revelation one nineteen, it says there's three parts to the book. Write down the things that are now. The, sorry, the, the things that you see. That's the vision of Christ in chapter 1. Then he says, and the things that are now. That's the church age in chapters 2 and 3, and then he says, and then the things that must take place after this, that's chapter 4 onwards, that's after the church age. Then John himself gets a kind of rapture in chapter 4 verse 1, he's taken up to heaven, and I believe there's time travel in the Bible because he's taken forward in time, and he actually sees the events of the end of the age, and I think he even sees himself, because I believe he's one of the 24 elders for that. I, I just like sci-fi. All right, so he is. Uh, John's taken to heaven, and then he's told, "Now you are going to be told the things that must take place after this." See, which is exactly that. So it's telling us we're onto the next stage of history after the Church Age is being revealed. You go up to heaven, glorious vision of heaven. Who's in heaven? The Church is in heaven, because who are the twenty-four elders? they are not angels. Angels are never described as elders. Elders are always men. In fact, elders is a term of leadership in the church, isn't it? And it's always men and elders are a representative office. Elders represent the whole church. These 24 elders represent a large group of people. Because you look at the song that they sing, they praise worthy is the Lamb, for you have redeemed us from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. This in other words, they represent the church that's been redeemed through the blood of Jesus and they are in heaven. They're sitting on thrones. They've been through the judgment seat of Christ. They've received their rewards. And therefore, the church is in heaven before the tribulation even begins. And then, of course, we see the Lamb opening the scroll. And this is what the book of Revelation is all about. Uh, have I got five minutes? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Wonderful. I'm just about do it. Because very few people understand this. And this is the whole key to the book of Revelation, is the scroll. And I... And I, and I um, the scroll is the title deed of the earth. And they are, in the law of redemption, in the Jew, in the they all had a piece of land in the promised land. And every family. But if you got into debt, you had to, you had to pay off your debt by selling your piece of the land. And sometimes you even had to sell yourself into slavery to pay off your debt. But the law provided for what's called a kinsman redeemer. Somebody who's a relative, who has the money and has the will, they are allowed to, to redeem that land and redeem you out of slavery and, and it be restored. That's called the kinsman redeemer. And when the kinsman redeemer would pay the price for that land, um, they would make up a land contract. and You would see this in Jeremiah when he bought a piece of land. And they made two copies of the contract. One copy was an open copy, showing who, that he had the right of ownership of the land. But the other one was a sealed copy. It would be sealed up with seven seals, and then it would be put away in a safe place where nobody could touch it. So... That was the proof of ownership. Now, just imagine you have a situation where the Redeemer has paid the price for the land, but for some reason he can't go back immediately and reclaim that land. In the meantime, the, 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 the evil tenants in that land, they don't want to give up the control of that land. But the time, and that's the case with Jesus. He's sat at his Father's right hand for 2,000 years. He hasn't taken possession. Now, he, when he, Jesus died on the cross... He purchased, he didn't just purchase us from slavery, praise God he did that, but he also purchased the earth. Because Jesus isn't just interested in in saving us, he's interested in establishing his kingdom on the earth. He is coming back, not just to pluck us out of here, he's coming back to take over this earth, praise Mm -hmm. God. He doesn't just have a salvation program, he has a kingdom program. And that's what the tribulation's all about. It's the kingdom of God, Coming in force to take over the earth. Praise God. And so when this Redeemer comes back to take possession, it's like to kick out the, the tenants that shouldn't be there. All right? They resist him. Satan's resist him. And his people resist Jesus. So what does he do? Jesus then, because you, why do you have that s- sealed copy? Because somebody might set, see the open copy of the Bible. The Bible tells us Jesus is the Redeemer. All right? He's paid with his blood. But you could say, oh, it's been tampered with. All right? It's challenged. So how do you prove that it's the genu- genuinely true? You, At this point, you open the sealed copy. And you present, and then you read out the sealed copy. And so the first thing Jesus does, and this is what the tribulation is. The tribulation is Jesus coming back in force to take over the earth. Alright? It's at the, In the church age right now, the whole purpose of the church age is the salvation of souls. I'm glad I'm talking to the evangelism department here because you are on the ball. Alright? This is what this age is about. It's not about taking over this earth, taking over control of the nations. Our aim is a soul harvest from the earth. Oh, man, Jesus bad. is going to do the kingdom stuff in the, you know, soon enough. Alright? Praise God. But, um, so, as the king, see, Psalm 110, right? Sit at my right hand until it's time to put your enemies under foot. All right? When does Jesus leave the right hand of God? It's at the rapture. That's when he leaves. In other words, from the moment he leaves, it's, he is now subduing his enemies under foot. And when he opens the seals, and I only just noticed this recently, when he opens the seals... He is standing, he's not sitting. So when he is opening the seals, at the start of the tribulation, he is standing. He is in kingdom mode. He is in the motion of taking over this planet, forcefully. Evicting his enemies. And so what's the first thing he does? He breaks open the seals. And as he breaks open the seals, what he's doing is he's proving that he has the right to take possession of the earth and kick out the, the tenants and that's why every time he opens the seals now if you were a landlord evicting tenants the first thing you do is pull the plug on the electricity and the water <laughs> right And that's what Jesus did when he opens the plug see at the moment even though the world rejects God his his grace and his mercy is restraining the effects of evil like we wouldn't believe but at this time at the opening of the seals he starts pulling the plug he, He's takes his hand back off every area of life and that's why as each seal is opened, a different realm of the earth and the world system starts to unravel and then later on the seventh seal he actually releases the seven trumpets and these are actually direct bombardments from heaven so it's escalating all the time but my point is simply this the Mitra person says actually the first half of the tribulation is just the wrath of man. It's just the wrath of Satan. It's only the second half of the tribulation is the wrath of God. So therefore, we're getting out mid-trip. People later on in the tribulation say that it's only when he opens the bowls of wrath right at the end. That's the wrath of God. So we're out of here just before the bowls of wrath. Alright? But actually the truth is the whole tribulation right from the beginning is judgment. Because from the opening of the seals, everything that happens on earth is a result of what Jesus is doing in heaven. He's opening the seals. So the day of the Lord begins, the judgment begins, not in the middle, not near the end, it begins right at the start of the tribulation. The whole seven years is the wrath of God. And therefore, we are not appointed to wrath. We are appointed to rapture. Praise God. Do I want to escape the tribulation? Absolutely, I don't want to be under the wrath of God. But in this age, we suffer persecution, and we need to be ready for that, absolutely. I've said enough.